0: Welcome to the Table Community Church Podcast. The Table is located in the Gallowson Valley in Southwest Montana and is joining God in bringing people together around the good news of Jesus. If you have any questions, or if there is in any way we can serve you, please let us know by reaching out to hello at thetablechurch.us. Again, that is hello at thetablechurch.us. We hope you enjoy the following episode.
1: If you have your Bibles, go to Matthew 17, 1 through 13. We are tracking through Matthew 16 through 18, and we're in a series called Recovering the Church, and we're just simply asking the question, what does it mean to be the church in the world today? And we've talked over the last couple of weeks about the challenges and tensions the churches are facing, all of the competing voices trying to tell us who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to be doing. And with all of these voices, it's really hard to discern who we're supposed to be and what we're actually supposed to be doing. And so we figure the best place to go and the best person to go to is Jesus himself. And so that's why we're going to Matthew 16 through 18, because... This is where Jesus is conceiving of the idea of the church and teaching his disciples about what it means to be a discipleship community. When you read Matthew 16-18, through the first image you don't think of is church. And that's because we have often misunderstood the nature of church. When we look in Matthew 16 and on, it's clear that this is a set of teachings aimed at his disciples, teaching them how to be in the world. This is the community that he is starting to build. And so everything Jesus is saying... And Matthew 16 through 18 is strategically connected to the DNA of the church. And so with that, what I want us to do is jump into Matthew 17, we'll read it, and then we will unpack it to the best that we can in the time that we have. So Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said, of course Peter had to say something. Peter said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters or booths. Maybe your translation reads, one for you, One for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up. He said, Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone about what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. The disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. That's God's word for today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, We're going to deal with uh, verses 1 through 9 primarily. We'll pick up in 10 uh, next week. So just know I'm not going to be able to cover everything in the time that we have. Um, If you're taking notes, on your notes, if you have it in front of you, the title for today is The Church That Listens. The Church That Listens, or The Church as a Listening Community. You can phrase it however you want, but I want you to understand from the very beginning that what we're talking about today is a church as a listening community community. Uh, and the church is a community that listens to Jesus, but listens to Jesus together. If you're anything like me, trying to discern God's voice can be very difficult. I know all of us in here are saying, well, is that God or is that me saying this? We've all had that tension, right? Is that God or is that me? Is that, Or worse, is that the devil? Or is that my or is that one of my parents' voices, like, coming in from the, from the past? Like, wh- whose voice am I hearing when I'm trying to make major life decisions or when I'm trying to make easy decisions, smaller decisions? H- how do I know that the voice I'm listening to is God's voice? That's a huge struggle for us. I think all of us can identify with that. And so today is not going to be a bunch of how-tos about methodology it's going to be more about intentionality. Strategically placing ourselves in places where Jesus promises to speak. So that's what we're going to look at today. But first, we're going to, look at, we're going to look, at, we'll look at this in two ways. We're going to look at the obstacles to hearing Jesus and the avenues for hearing Jesus. So let's jump right into it. The obstacles to hearing Jesus. This is what we find in this text. It pops out at me immediately when I began to start studying it and reading it. Um, well, the first obstacle... Is simply this: is that Jesus is merely one of among many voices, and not the priority. Jesus is one of many voices, but not the priority. In our lives, this is one obstacle to, to trying to hear the voice of God. We we often have other voices that we have unintentionally often put up at the level of Jesus, or we've brought Jesus down to a different level that he doesn't belong. It's the priority of the person of Jesus in our lives. That not being in place is a huge obstacle for us not hearing from Jesus. We've hit on this the last two weeks, the priority of the person and work in Jesus. And the reason why we keep making this point is because the text keeps making this point. Jesus assumes that we are going to struggle to put him in his proper place. And this whole Matthew 16 through 18, every, 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 every passage in this text is the disciples' failure in Jesus' correction. Everyone. You don't find the glory of the disciples in this. You find a bunch of disciples who just can't seem to get it through their thick skulls who Jesus is. And it's easy to sit critically at them, but we are them. And so how does this relate to the text? Well, jumping into it, it says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Six days is there to connect this to the former passage, everything that's going on. In the former passage, Jesus ended what we talked about last week was, truly, I tell you, some... Some, he's talking to all of them, some who are standing here in his presence will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is a unique way of saying some of you are going to see something so profound it is going to cause you to change the way you view life entirely before before you even taste death. So he's saying something that a few of you are going to see that some of you others will not. And immediately the next passage is the transfiguration. It has to, It's connected. Six days after is referring to six days after what was just said. It's connecting to this whole story that what they see on the mountaintop is a new light on, in Jesus. And so they're talking about seeing jesus in this transfigured way and in verse two it talks about jesus as they get up to the top of this mountain they trudge up this mountain we really don't know which mountain this is we have some guesses but we don't know it really doesn't matter so they get up at the top of this mountain and then it says jesus was transfigured we don't have an english word to really describe what's actually happening there we don't understand what's being said the greek word is where we get our word metamorphosis that's, that's where we get our word from, for metamorphosis. We don't know. Something changed where they saw Jesus in a completely new way. Visibly changed Jesus. And most scholars and theologians are thinking that it's the pre-incarnate Jesus in, all, in his full glory. This radiant light. And the language of white and pure. And it's, it's getting after purity and wisdom. He is completely unstained by the world. That's how they're seeing Jesus right now. Unstained, totally wise. And this is important because only Jesus then is able to deal with the stains in the world. Well, as he's there, there also appears Moses and Elijah. These are pillars of the Jewish faith, and they stand, their representation here stands for the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets what we would consider today, what we call the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament. The fulfillment of all of that is based upon Moses and Elijah. And now when when the original audience, Matthew's audience, the people who are first reading Matthew's gospel, they are Jewish followers of Jesus trying to make sense of how do we be a community in light of and considering the person of Jesus. And so Matthew is telling Jesus a story in a very Jewish way to help them connect to it. And so when they hear that Jesus goes up a mountain, they're immediately thinking about two other pillars of the faith who have gone up the mountains before, received something from God, and then come back down. So all of a sudden, Matthew wants you to be thinking about Jesus in the line and story of the Hebrew Scriptures. He goes up the mountain. They're like, okay, we know where this is going. We know where this is going. He's going to hear from God, and it's going to be remarkable. They're thinking about mountaintop moments, and it's representing the law and the prophets the law don't think about just the instructions think about like the first 5 books of the bible the torah this filled with stories and history it's more the law actually is more of like a uh, a way of life for the jewish people it's not a bunch of instructions though there are instructions it's the guidance to the good life and the prophets are consistently and always calling people back to faithfulness that's their role When you read throughout the prophets, they're not so much concerned with future telling as much as they they do tell some future stuff, but they're mostly concerned about calling people back to faithfulness to God. And so here you have the two pillars, Moses and Elijah, up on this mountaintop with Jesus. Just like, though, just like Jesus wants us to know, there is a priority about him that's important. You see, those two figures disappear, and only Jesus remains. It's signifying... The priority of Jesus. It's not saying that Moses and Elijah are bad. It's saying that they are not the point. Moses himself tells us to be looking for someone beyond himself way back in Deuteronomy. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, not me, kind of like me, from among you, and you must listen to him. Moses said that in Deuteronomy 18. ...Moses is pointing on. Same with Elijah. Elijah was pointing on. And here Jesus is the only one who remains. But here's the difference. Whereas Moses goes up the mountain... ...and receives the word on tablets... ...and brings it down to the people... ...Jesus ascends the mountain... ...where they realize... ...He's not bringing down a set of rules. He is Himself the word coming down. He is Himself the word. And then like we find in John... ...in the beginning was the word... ...and the word was with God... ...and the word was God... When Jesus ascends the mountain like a new Moses, he comes back down better than Moses, more important than Moses, as the true word. And the word, this idea of word, it means the full rationality, full wisdom, full communication of God. A word is an instrument of communication. So when we look to Jesus at the center of Christianity is not the book, it's the person about whom the book speaks. Jesus stands at the center Of everything that we do. He is the priority. He is the basis of reality. The word means an instrument of communication. God himself is incarnate in Jesus. And we look at him. And we listen to him. So that's a challenge for us. We're constantly hitting on the priority of Jesus. And an obstacle to hearing Jesus. is That he's not in his proper place. And we find in the text that disciples. They still didn't have Jesus properly placed when Peter says, hey, let's build some tents for three. For three. There should have been one. Jesus, for them, was still not quite where he needed to be in their lives. And so the next obstacle is that we are a hurry and hustle oriented culture. Jesus is not prioritized. And we're also a very hurried and hustled culture. We're distracted more often than we are devoted, if we're being honest. And I'm telling you this as someone who's right there with everyone struggling through this. In verse 4, Peter interrupts the divine moment, just like Peter does. It says says Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were talking. They're having a conversation, and Peter's like, Hey, (laughs) what's up? What's going on over there? You want us to build you guys some tents, or what? He He interrupts them. Interrupts this divine moment. I always wonder what Elijah, Moses, and Jesus were talking about. I wonder if Jesus like, we're going to pull one fast over Peter here in just a second. Watch this. Hey, hey guys, listen to what the Father's going to say here in just a second to Peter. Watch him. He's going to come up and interrupt and watch him get put in his place. It's going to be funny. We have no idea what they were talking about. But in the, whatever it is, Peter feels the need to interrupt with his agenda again. It is good for us to be here. Let's build some tents. And what we think is happening is that Peter is trying to, what we've talked about before, kind of set up Jesus' kingdom right there for him. Set up a mountain of worship for all to see because that's kind of what the tabernacle uh, signifies, setting up these booths and tabernacles. It's a place of worship. So he's trying to keep Jesus from the cross again by building a worship temple here and now. Again, he is in Jesus' way. Again, he has interrupted Jesus' flow of thought. Peter is like us. He feels like he needs to be doing something for Jesus all the time. He is more concerned with doing than being. He's more concerned with hustling than hearing. We are a lot like this. You see, in our culture, busyness is a badge of honor. Busyness is equated to productivity. And if we're not busy, we're worth nothing. Last week, we talked about, I post, therefore I am. This week, it's, I do, therefore I am. I am busy, therefore I am. Just think about your interactions. When you say, hey, how you doing, people? And most people say, busy. It's almost like a a cultural value that we place upon ourselves, that if I'm not doing something, I'm worth nothing. And this is like Peter here. It's not so much that Jesus isn't ever speaking, it's that we're not slowing down to hear him. We're very distracted. You know, one study recently done said the average person touches their smartphone over 2,000 times a day. 2,000 times a day. Two thousand times a day. We are a very distracted culture, and we pretend like we can multitask. We cannot. In fact, in our in our attempts to try to multitask, we're actually unable to focus on anything for a long period of time. One of my favorite uh, writers, he says, uh, we are more busy than bad. We are more distracted than we are non-spiritual. We are more interested in the movies, the sports, the shopping experiences, and the fantasy life that they, they, they promise but never deliver. Pathological busyness and distraction and restlessness are major blocks to our spiritual intimacy with Jesus. Peter interrupts God. God interrupts Peter. It says, as Peter was speaking... God shows up in an emphatic way and says, this is my son whom I love. I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. The primary thing that he wants his disciples to know, the three that are going to teach the the rest of the disciples and then the rest of the disciples that are going to form the church, the first thing he wants to know is you will be a community that listens to Jesus. Jesus. Dell Bruner says it like this, Peter's feverish building project is arrested by the voice simpler program of listening. The church is tempted to think that the main service it performs for Christ is to be very busy for him, but the church's main service then and now is to give opportunities for him to be listened to because right listening always leads to a non-frantic spiritual life. Does your life feel frenzied all the time? Perhaps we are buying into the hustle and hurry narrative more than we are the narrative that Jesus is saying here. Listen to me. How are you feeling? You okay? That sat with us all week. It's your turn. The question then becomes okay, that's fine. How? I'm, I'm, I, I want to do better. I want to, re- I want to change my organizational spirit. I want, I want to listen to Jesus, but how? Because Cody, the disciples, had Jesus right beside them. Very easy to listen to someone who is physically present. How in the world do we? Well, here's the thing. Jesus anticipates our doubt and our skepticism and our questions. So later on in his ministry, right before his death, he promises something to his people. He says, I'm not going to be right beside you. I'm actually going to be inside of you, working from the inside out. And This is what he has to say in John 14:15. If you love me and keep my commandments, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And he goes on to say that he will remind you of everything and he's going to bring you peace. Can you believe that? Jesus knew what we were going to be saying. Oh, well, we don't have Jesus right beside. He goes, yeah, duh, I have told you I'm leaving. You're going to need someone else. He's given us the spirit. So now where does the spirit show up? This is where it gets fun. The avenues for hearing Jesus. So God interrupts Peter, listen to my son. And keep in mind, what we're talking about here is not about methodology. It's just about intentionality. If we just develop some sort of intentionality around these few things, you will find yourself hearing from Jesus. What God is telling Peter to do is to slow down. There's an acrostic there for you. You can go ahead and fill it in. S-L-O-W. How convenient. Slow. Only when we slow down will we start hearing from God. Otherwise, you're going to be praying in your car frantically as you walk into work, which is not a bad thing. But there's never the calm intimacy with the Spirit. There's always a frantic, frenzied pace. And when I watch Jesus' ministry, I don't see someone who's in a hurry. I don't see someone who's anxiously moving about. And he promises himself to us. So the first one is a sitting with Jesus. Sitting with Jesus. When we slow down, we are practicing focused times. This is the two things here. Prayer and scripture. These are two when we sit with Jesus and worship. I'm going to get to that one next week or the week after that. But here I want to talk about prayer and scripture. You see, prayer is just an ongoing conversation with God. We don't have to overcomplicate this thing. It is an ongoing, intentional conversation with God. Fascinating to me is always when the disciples see Jesus doing all these miracles, debating all these Pharisees, they never once ask him, them to teach them how to do those things. Teach us how to call fire down from heaven. They don't, they don't say that. They assume they can. James and John assume they can call fire down from heaven. What? I don't know what that means. Anyway... They did Jesus teach us to pray. There was something about his prayer life that pro- provoked them to ask and demand to learn how to pray. And so Jesus gives them the Lord's Prayer, which is not a formula, it's a framework, talking about how to set your mind on the things of God, how to ask him for intervention in your life and the life of other people. It's not a complicated thing, but we like to overcomplicate things. We don't need as, much, as many awesome books as there are, and I can tell you a ton of amazing books on prayer that will fashion your prayer life And deep, but the, the, the fundamental thing is not a methodology. It's an intentionality to just do it, to just sit with Jesus and open yourself up to him. The Spirit promises to be there. You can plan all day long. I got, you're going to laugh at this. A couple of weeks ago, we had like a team meeting about how to do prayer here on sundays because before covid we had a really rich prayer thing going i don't know if you remember that and then so but since covid it seems like almost all the time we're just trying to constantly like get our wits about us we had this meeting about we got to we got to figure out how to do prayer Well, we had this meeting and like some meetings do you don't ever land on what exactly it is you wanted to do (laughs) and so we didn't come up with a plan well last week someone had i don't know who i still don't know who but someone said that's it we're doing prayer this week i have no idea who made that decision they moved him over there, they prayed. I heard three different prayer requests in that group answered this week. This week, it was fascinating. We don't have to overthink it. We just have to sit down and practice being with Jesus. It's amazing what happens. Praying. There's this myth that it's some kind of like mountaintop experience. This mountaintop moment with the disciples only happened this one time. Most of the life of Christ is building relationship with them in the small, seemingly insignificant, and mundane life. Just think about it. The, your whole relationships that you have, they're not sustained by the mountaintop moments. They are supported and they're amazing, but they're not the, they're not the grit of the relationship. Christy and I went to Mexico a couple of years ago, and it was one of the first times we've gone on vacation anywhere. And it was fascinating. We still talk about Mexico. But is Mexico is what keeping Christy and I in a healthy relationship? No, it's the daily conversations. It's the daily rhythm. What you seem like is insignificant, like sitting down for dinner, like hanging out together, spending the quality time together. Those are the small, seemingly not insignificant, but quite profound moments that sustain the relationship. Prayer is what we do, how we do that with God. We've got to normalize boredom again. (laughs) Normalize sitting down. So that's prayer and scripture. Again, I'm not telling you how to do it. I'm just telling you the places to go. Scripture. This has to do with meditating and studying the word. Allowing the words of scripture to shape our lives. Because in that we find life. It's a living document here. There's no no other document in the world like it. There's no other book in the world like it. Jesus promises to show up as we study the story of God. And as we meditate on it. Chew on it. In Psalm 1, it tells us, blessed are those who delight in God's word. That means you find your warmth in there. Who anchor themselves in it. The research is pretty clear that most Christians do not open their Bible during the week. For a sustained portion of time. We may get a notification from the Bible app giving us the verse of the day, which we will share on social media to let people know we've read it. But we often read the scriptures, but we don't let the scriptures read us. We interpret the scriptures, but we don't allow it to interpret us. We are shaped by the other various voices. One of the frustrating things I, I experienced over the last couple of years especially is how well articulate people are with their political party But do not know the contours of the Sermon on the Mount? I can cite the Constitution. Good, I like it. Can you cite the Sermon on the Mount as well? The pages of Scripture that teach us about who we're supposed to be and the way we're supposed to be living? We are being shaped by something. This is where Jesus speaks to us and how he shapes us. He is speaking to us through the pages of Scripture. Again, are knowing other voices bad? No. Moses and Elijah, wonderful voices. Jesus is superior. And it's all about him. So don't hear me saying neglect all of that. Just prioritize our time in scripture. There was a research, there was some research done in 2014. Fascinating to me. Uh, This uh, education or this, this school did a experiment where they wanted to see if people could sit still for 15 minutes and give their attention to one or two things. And so they, it was uh, hundreds of people were surveyed. And so what they did was they put them in a room. They made them put up their phones, put up everything. They just walked in with nothing. They just had to sit in a chair for 15 minutes. They couldn't do it. They had, they had to get up out of the chair and pace. They had to get, move around, scratch their head. And then when they were asked about, hey, what, what were you thinking about? They said a ton of different things. So you didn't focus on one thing? No, we couldn't. Okay. And so, said, well, let's put, let's put some money on it. And so they said, we'll pay you $5 if you can sit still for 15 minutes. It didn't help. they were like, oh, heck yeah, I'll do that. With the positive incentive, they still couldn't do it. No, okay, so positively, maybe one or two more actually sat there. So it did a little bit, but not really enough to change the study, to change the, the way we're trying to figure out how long we can sit still. So they said, well, It might work positively, but what if there was a negative effect for not sitting still? So what they did was they put an electromagnetic shock in the middle. I'm I'm not kidding. You can look this up. I'll I'll, I'll post it on Facebook later if you want to see this research. Fascinating. They they put a a thing that you can shock yourself. It doesn't shock you. You shock yourself. They say, do you think by sitting in there for 15 minutes focused that you will want to touch that button? All of them said no. Most of them ended up, they could not sit still. They just had to. They had to feel something, they had to be doing something, so they administered pain. We would rather feel pain than be detached from our devices or have to sit and focus. Think about that. We can't sit still, we don't sit still, and nor do we want to sit still. But sitting with Jesus is the priority. And in a culture that's hustle-oriented, this sounds like a death sentence. On my notes, I had a little pun for you. They were shockingly bored. (laughs) There you go. That's free. You can take that with you. So sitting with Jesus in prayer and scripture, of all the avenues, these are the most significant, but these are the most neglected because they require us to sit still. And people say, I don't have the time. I don't have the time. I don't have the time. Then it's time to reorganize because that means Jesus is not the priority. We can get up 15 minutes earlier. We can. Guys, I'm right here. I'm I'm right in the middle of this with you. I'm I'm not not lying. You can ask my family. They'll tell you. I'm not here a lot. But this is what the scripture teaches us to organize our life around. And we've got to to figure out a way to hear from Jesus. The dangers of not hearing from Jesus are far worse than we can imagine. People will start telling us to platform all these other voices How will we discern what's good and what's not? So sitting with Jesus in prayer and scripture. The L is listening to others. When we slow down, we begin to hear Jesus' words through those around us. This is why isolated spirituality is not a possibility in scripture. God is constantly speaking to his people, through his people, for his people. You can't read the book of Acts or the Old Testament for that matter and miss the significance of God's voice among and in the community, testing it together, praying about it together, disagreeing about it together. In the book of Acts, there's a situation where Paul and the Ephesian elders are struggling to make sense of whether or not who's right about hearing from God. The Ephesian elders are saying, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem or you're going to get hurt. So the spirit's telling us, don't go. Well, Paul's saying, well, the spirit's telling me to go. What do you do? Paul says, "Well, I'm going to go." He knew he knew the consequences, but he was working it out with others. There was this constant, there was this constant reality of bouncing what you sense God doing off of other people. A couple of stories. When Chris and I first got married, long story short, I was just not being a good husband. I'll just put it that way. And there were some serious changes I needed to make. And I remember really having conflict about seeing a counselor, getting additional help. It was very conflicted for me. And I went to visit a friend, and uh, we used to play music together. And we, were, we sat at this burger joint in Tyler, Texas. I can tell you exactly where we were. We were sitting there, and, and he, he said one sentence. I'm not going to tell you what the sentence he said was, but he said one sentence to me. He didn't know I was going to ask him questions about marriage. He didn't know, He didn't know anything about the situation. But I shared with him what I was struggling with, hoping to get some like, oh, Cody, you're right. You know, sometimes you do that, you go looking for friends just to tell you you're right. Yeah, Uh, that's what I was kind of hoping for, but he didn't. He shared with me one sentence that shook me to my core about what it meant to be a husband. And I imperfectly began to walk it out, tried to. God was speaking to him through me, and it probably was a huge proponent of what saved our marriage. Listening to others, how God is speaking to others. Fast forward. When Christy and I sensed that God was moving us on from Georgia and we were trying to contemplate where, what that looked like, somebody shared a prophetic word that we were supposed to go to Montana. And three times I had this conversation. No, no, nope, no. Nope. <laughs> Christy, on the other hand, was convicted that this is where we were supposed to be. She was convinced. It was like you didn't have... She didn't need any more information. It was just settled for her that Montana was where we need to go not me it took multiple conversations with people that i trusted and one of them called me an idiot one time because i because i wasn't i wasn't clear I wasn't seeing clearly the signs that were telling us to go to montana well i was seeing them i just was interpreting through the lens of my own agenda so christy was fully on board i was not how do we how do we do that in community it was the voice of other people speaking and encouraging challenging calling me an idiot We've got to listen to God's voice through others. And we're not going to nail it perfectly every time. But the imperfection does not give us permission just to withdraw from God's collective speaking through His people. And by listening, you find acceptance, you find encouragement, and you find accountability. Acceptance, encouragement, and accountability. Those should be three priorities of people, of, of people you trust. Hey, I'm going to share with them some deep parts about who I am. I'm, I'm I'm praying that they accept me without judgment. I pray they encourage me, and I pray they hold me accountable. Listening to others. The next one is observing. Just observing. This may sound a little new age ish to you, but it's quite scriptural. I promise you I'll land there. Observing God's voice in creation. Observing God's voice in creation. When we slow down and we observe what God is doing in the world, it's the Spirit speaks to us wisdom, insights, and lessons, just from his creation. In 1988, there was a a fire in Yellowstone that just wiped out a ton. It became known, it was considered the fire that started what we call the mega fire era, where we're in this constant mega fire season, where the fires are more hot, they're more damaging, whatever. And so there's many, many theories and reasons why that is, but... Uh, Gary Ferguson wrote a book called The Eight Major Lessons You Can Learn from Nature. It's a, wonder, it's a wonderful little book. But he talks about how after 1998, the year after, he walked through where all this fire went. And the reason why these fires took place was uh, a lot of us felt like um, anytime there was a fire, we needed to put it out. But he goes on and shows how, you know, there's good burn. There's good fire that helps, the, helps nature reproduce in, in productive ways. But we felt fire was bad and put it out. This was one of the most devastating things he had seen because the growth out of it was so slow. It had disrupted the soil so much that it just took forever. But he, uh, a year and a half later, he was walking, and there was one spot where he found a green plant kind of just bursting through the soil. And he, and he said, there's, like a, there's a resurrection quality about nature when you slow down and look. And so fast forwarding 2005, him and his wife are canoeing, and they had a tragic accident. She dies, took days to find her. And he talks about the grieving process, how community was essential for him. But he said the one thing that he didn't expect was for all of the lessons from nature to flood his mind. And through the process of thinking about even that, that tiny little plant, it was, it was a form of therapy for him to contemplate what the lessons nature was teaching. Now, for Christians, we believe that nature, if nature's teaching us a lesson, it's because there's a teacher behind it who's designed it that way. But he said that the natures teach us that fires of life are real, painful, and difficult, but new life emerges. It's hard, it's ugly, it takes time, but it emerges. It will. And so when you have those those massive psychological wildfires out of trauma in life that have burned the soil of your heart so much that you doubt that there's ever any growth possible, it may take a long time, but the green will burst through because there's a resurrection-like quality to what God is doing in you and through you. And so the encouragement from that little lesson that just from observing is to keep walking, keep walking. He says it like this, in times of turmoil, those who have even the small slice of nature to lean on in their daily lives are more likely to prove resilient, emerging from difficult circumstances and emotionally intact. The science indicates that when we observe nature, it's it's affecting a different side of the brain that's equally as important as what lights up when we're spending time in community. There's a healing quality to observing the nature, to dealing with things that we're facing. Kind of like what Jesus said, look at the birds. Look at the birds. It's observing. And Psalm 19 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the handiwork. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes through all of the earth. Their words to the ends of the earth. His inaudible voice bursts through creation. But you have to slow down long enough to look at the birds. The last one is this, walking with Jesus. We began with sitting with Jesus, now we're walking with Jesus. When we slow down, we think more about faithfulness, obedience, and character more than we do hustle and advancement. You see, walking, have you ever had to try to have a conversation with someone when you're running on a jog? It can be kind of difficult, can't it? You know, and then like in your mind, you're thinking, dude, would you just shut up? <laughs> like I'm, I'm trying to, not that I run a lot, I don't run a lot, but I remember running. I remember running back in the day. <laughs> oh man, I'm really indicting my workout routines here. Lack of workout routines, I just got to be honest. But the, uh, it, it's just really hard to keep a conversation while you're running. Now, I think it's funny that the idea is slowing down walking with Jesus. Walking, you can, if you're walking with somebody, you have conversations. Some of the most important conversations comes on some walks we go on, don't, don't they? Walking with Jesus. This is about obedience. This is about following Jesus in obedience. That when you find something in scripture or in prayer or in community that rubs against the very core of who you think you are, entrusting yourself to Jesus and saying, I even disagree with you, Jesus, on this, but I'm going to entrust my life to you on this point and see what yields. There are a lot of difficult things in scripture. Following Jesus is really hard. There are going to be things that challenge you And you're gonna be like, but I don't believe that. Well, walking with Jesus implies entrusting the deepest, the deepest discrepancy between you and Jesus, entrusting him with that and putting him to the test, that obedience to him will yield the fruit that you actually crave. In Scripture, you'll find yourself convicted, but you'll also find yourself profoundly comforted. A lot of evangelicalism focuses on like the stern conviction. Read God's word and be convicted. Yes, but read God's word and be comforted. If we're reading the Bible and we're never comforted, we're reading it wrong. Blessed are those who meditate day and night on this thing. We all have at least one struggle, that we, are, that we have a hard time entrusting to Jesus. Walking with Jesus means following his pattern of obedience to God. He was utterly faithful. We will be imperfectly obedient, but our imperfections does not give us permission to continue to walk away and to say, I'm not giving this area to you, Jesus. These are the spaces where God promises to speak as we sit with him in prayer and scripture, as we listen to him through others, as we are observing creation, and as we are walking with him in obedience. If we position ourselves here, we then learn how to listen to Jesus. The, uh, the comforting thing here, when we give sermons or teachings like this, it's easy to walk away and feel guilty, Right? It's easy to walk away and feel, dang, I must do better. I want you to watch how Jesus approaches Peter, who just interrupted God. (laughs) Again. They, They have this huge revelation. They fall flat on their face, and they're scared to death. Jesus walks up, and he says, touches them. Get up. Don't be afraid. Get up don't be afraid. He didn't come up and slap them on the wrist. He said, stand up, just just follow me. Don't be afraid. In In our culture, we have to learn to distinguish between conviction and condemnation. Conviction will always lead you to a sense of comfort in following Jesus, even though it's hard. Condemnation will say that you'll never do enough. Condemnation will say you'll never be good enough, you'll never get your spiritual practices in order, you'll never read enough of the Bible, you'll never be good enough to actually follow Jesus. That's a lie. That's condemnation. Jesus approaches us no matter where we are and puts his hand on us and says, get up, don't be afraid. It's comforting. Jesus is always inviting you. Always inviting you. What Jesus is doing is he's putting his hand on your shoulder and he's saying, I want to speak with you. Get up and don't be afraid. Jesus is always, always, ready to sit with you always to hear you to hear your doubts your skepticism your anger always he's interested in you praying what is in you what not you think ought to be in you that's the invitation today is to slow down and to be with him when i think about my worst moments as a husband. As a father as a pastor as a friend my worst moments are often coming from a place of hurry and agitation a lot of the things that can be reworked is by slowing down and so what i hope that we take away into the conversation is that the church ought to be a community that prioritizes listening to Jesus together by slowing down and resisting the cultural impulse to do a lot of stuff while sacrificing spiritual intimacy.
0: Thanks for checking us out and listening to the podcast. We hope this resource has been meaningful for you during this time in your life. We invite you to share this episode and leave us a review to let us know how we are doing in sharing the gospel in our cultural climate. Be sure to check us out online at thetablechurch.us.